This episode of the Unusual Whales Pod is sponsored by Tuttle Capital Management. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, I hope everyone's having a nice uh, morning or afternoon, wherever they are. Uh, this is our first uh, ETF space that Unusual Whales has ever done. We're super excited to host this panel on uh, ETF uh, and uh, learn more about uh, uh, the subject given our expert panel. I'm Unusual Wales. Uh, we have some of the greats in the ETF world to discuss, and I'm happy to have Nicholas help lead this conversation. Nicholas, if you can. Good morning, everybody. I am super excited to have all these ETF speakers here with us today. All of those who frequent our spaces know I like to keep these panels very open for discussion. So as we go, everybody here talking on the panel, please feel free to discuss openly, add any thoughts you may have on any given topic. The only request that I have is that you keep yourselves muted when someone else is talking and use that little Twitter space hand raise emoji when you want to add something just so we can avoid any kind of talking over each other, etc. So with that, we will introduce our speakers today. First up, we've got Matthew Tuttle. Tuttle is the CEO and CIO of Tuttle Capital Management, the advisor to the first ever actively managed SPAC ETF, SPAC and new issue ETF, ticker SPCX, proprietor of the Inverse Kramer, very popular, and Long Kramer ETFs that track Jim Kramer's trades and suggestions, and the famous first ever ETF to go short on another ETF, SARC. Tuttle's also the author of Amazon bestseller, How Harvard and Yale Beat the Market. Welcome, Matthew. Hey, thank you for having me. And thank you for coming. I'm really excited to get your input on, on the ETF landscape today. Next, we've got Nate Geraci. Nate is the president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store, host of the podcast ETF Prime and co-founder of the ETF Institute, providing ETF professionals with education, certification, training. He's also the author of the great blog, The ETF Educator, which you should all be subscribed to. How are you doing today, Nate? Thanks for coming. I'm doing fantastic. Excited to be here today. Excited to have you, man. Thank you. Next, we've got James Seyfert, an ETF and broader fund industry analyst and research writer for Bloomberg Intelligence. James is also involved in production for Bloomberg's ETF IQ TV show, focusing on all things ETF. Welcome, James. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm happy to be here. Happy to have you. Next, we've got Thomas George. He's an expert on growth, energy, and mining, and is the portfolio manager of the actively managed Grizzle Growth ETF, ticker GRZZ, investing in key growth areas across multiple sectors. He's also the host of the Grizzle Media channel on YouTube, which you should also be subscribed to. Thanks for coming, Hey, Thomas. thank you so much. And next, we've got Jeff Weniger, the head of equity strategy at Wisdom Tree, an industry leader in weighted and active ETFs. Jeff is an expert in fundamental economic and behavioral analysis for strategic asset allocation with a long history of managing ETF model portfolios. Happy to have your expertise on the ETF space. Jeff, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. All right, everybody. So to start things off... I want to focus on kind of a bird's eye view of the finance world at the moment and how the ETF 
landscape is adapting. We have had a difficult Fed, entrenched inflation concerns, a banking crisis, and overall unease in the markets in general. In turn, we have also had a heyday of investing post-2020, and the ETF world has changed significantly in the last five years, especially in the last two. So to start us off here, Matthew, can you walk us through the changes in the ETF landscape over the last several years and how you guys position yourself given the change market, especially given the new difficulties in the last year? Yeah. So, you know, when, when I started off in, in the ETF space, it was all, just all index funds, uh, you know, trying to do low cost beta exposure. And, and that was pretty much it. And it's it's really i mean it's changed a ton there's a lot of new innovation uh you know what we've tried to do is you know focus on a lot of first of their kind things you know tools for retail traders that you know never existed before uh, you've got a whole bunch of new kind of actively managed things coming out you've got yeah, and, and just so you see how the ETF market's adapting to this current marketplace. You know, you've got all sorts of hedging vehicles, the ability to, you know, short things like ARC, the ability to short things like Jim Cramer, the ability to short single stocks. You've also got defined outcome ETFs now becoming more and more popular. You've got option strategies for generating income being more and more popular. And I think you're going to continue as long as the SEC allows it, which they're kind of being dragged along kicking and screaming, I think you'll continue to see a lot more innovation in this space. And does anyone else on the panel want to add to what Matthew said? Yeah, I'll just add, uh, dovetailing on his comment regarding active strategies, it's interesting because the roots of the ETF industry are obviously in passive, but if you think about the way the industry looks today, all of the plain vanilla exposures are pretty well spoken for. When you think about Vanguard and iShares and State Street, they have those locked up. And I would also argue that a lot of the rules-based smart data strategies are pretty well spoken for too, uh, because there's only so many ways you can do a value ETF. But if you think about active management, that can be a differentiator. I think, especially if you have higher active share uh, more concentrated active. If you can do that, you can differentiate away from the indices and the ETF wrapper obviously offers the ability to deliver those in a, a lower cost, more tax efficient way. So I think if, if looking at active strategies and you combine that with a market environment that we're currently in, you know, you go back over the past decade, if you just allocated to a plain vanilla market cap weighted index, you were doing pretty well. You're probably doing better than most investors. Uh, but w when that market environment shifted, you know, say towards the end of 2021, early last year, I think more investors are looking at active strategies and we see that in the ETF flows. I, I think even this year, there's something like 30 percent of all the money that has gone into ETFs has gone into active strategies, even though active ETFs only represent about 5 percent of the total assets in the industry. Thomas, I see your hand there. Go ahead. Yeah, uh, couldn't agree more with respect to active and just it just the you know just the excitement around that. I, I think when you look when you look past right, you you have the the general index indexing of 
very, you know, uh, very basic, passive, you know, and, and that's to, to Nate's point, that's, you know, that's pretty well saturated. But, in, you know, then you have the evolution to smart beta again, you know, getting factor exposure. And I'll talk about this that, you know, that really drove that era. But I think now you're you're getting this unique space, which is pretty dynamic, where now you're getting factors that, you know, that are totally, you know, totally outside of what has been typically viewed as as uh, in the financial realm as factors, right? Like, you, now you got the Kramer, right? You, you got the Pelosi, like you have these dynamic areas where this is just so different. And when you add the element of like true concentration, uh, so you're really getting torque into this new factor, I think things get really exciting. And it, and it, it makes the landscape uh, for investors much more exciting because behind these uh, unique products are real people with voices like this is not like, you know, this is not like, you know, the, uh, you know, BlackRock, you know, uh, uh, the monolith just, you know, pushing out ETFs. This is like, you know, there's somebody behind it. There, there, you know, there's a feeling there's a, you know, there's a excitement. So Thomas just touched on a topic that I definitely wanted to talk about today. So Matthew, he mentioned our good old Kramer ETFs. How do you see the Kramer ETF fitting into the new forming landscape of ETFs, given what everybody said so far, Matthew? Looks like you might be muted there. Sorry about that. Yeah, it fits in in an entirely different way. So, you know, when we launched Sark, a lot of people thought, oh, it's just a gimmick, you know, whatever. And, and we came out and said, well, no, this is a better hedge. If you think the market's going to go down, you know, would you rather be shorting Teladoc and Roku or would you rather be shorting Amazon and Microsoft? And, and we look at what we did with SGIM is, is a tool in, in somewhat of a similar manner, but th there's a lot of important differences. So, yeah, I, I've been trading in the market since the, the mid 80s. And the one thing that's constant that you always notice is that the consensus is usually wrong. And that's because the consensus is usually getting into things way late and, you know, and, and getting out of things way late. And, you know, always kind of wondered, you know, how, you know, how do you monetize that? And the beauty of someone like Jim Cramer is he's the consensus, but he's the consensus on steroids. And, and, and the, there, there's a couple of reasons why. Number one, he swings at every pitch. And, and that's not a criticism of him. He's got no choice. So, you know, I, I would assume all of us on here, we've got a group of stocks that, you know, that we probably know pretty well, but we, we don't know every stock, but, you know, Kramer's got to pretty much opine on anything that somebody calls in about, you know, event, occasionally he'll punt, but for the most part, he's got to tell you, buy, 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 sell, sell, sell. Or, you know, if David Faber or someone else asks him a question, you know, he can't duck the question. He's got to answer it. So he's got to swing at every pitch. Number two, he's got an uncanny, innate ability. I, I, you know, I don't understand it. I don't know where it comes from to get things just horrifically wrong. Um, you know, and we've all seen it, you know, Bear Stearns and, 
you know, fast forward to this year, his crypto calls, he just came out negative on Bitcoin again today, you know, Silicon Valley Bank, you know, on and on and on and on. So where we see SGIM is really as a portfolio diversifier. You know, one of the things that, that came out of last year, last year was, you know, the first year for, I think, a lot of people who, you know, have just started recently investing where bonds were not a risk reducer to your portfolio. And I think that freaked a lot of people out. You know, hey, the 60-40 portfolio didn't protect me. And it got people looking for different types of uncorrelated asset classes to put into their portfolio. So, you know, managed futures is, is the obvious one and, and, you know, billions flowed into managed futures last year. And managed futures is, is a trend following strategy. I look at SGIM is fitting in perfectly there because SGIM is really a counter trend following strategy. So we're, what you're doing, you know, Kramer's coming out. What's the stuff he's telling you to buy, buy, buy? It's the stuff that's already gone up a lot. And what's the stuff he's telling you to sell, sell, sell? It's the stuff that's already gone down a lot. So, you know, it, it's an entirely different strategy than anything that's out there. So unlike, and, and you know, and I've got some criticism from people, especially lately on Sark, you know, some dude hit me up on LinkedIn. He's like, well, you know, if you hold Sark for 10 years, you know, you'll probably underperform the S&P. It's like, well, I mean, dude, Sark is not a buy and hold for 10-year product. Sark is, it's a hedge you can hold for longer than you could hold, you know, inverse Qs or inverse SPY, but I wouldn't buy and hold it for 10 years. SGIM, I believe, is something you can buy and just stick in your portfolio and it's going to be, you know, totally uncorrelated with anything else you got. Thank you, Matthew. James, I see your hand. Could I get your thoughts here as well on the usage of thematic ETFs, especially as a hedge to large market movement? Yeah, so um, overall, like, I'm just going to, there's, there's a couple, there's a couple of key massive trends that we watch in the, um, in the asset management space right now, right? And I, I try, I do my best to try track. The two trends are: there's a trend from active to passive, and there's a trend from mutual funds to ETFs. And within that, it's really both of those kind of come back to this this idea of like high cost to low cost. People are trying to lower the fees they're paying on their total portfolio, but within that is also this growth of active, like within that overarching changing sea tide, right? Um, and most of that is like a lot of people are going towards this barbell portfolio approach this core satellite approach so you can get beta for virtually free now we talked about like it's mostly commoditized you can get free cheap bass passive exposure very cheaply right so people are doing that for the core parts of their portfolio what this means is in the satellite parts of their portfolio people are willing to get way more active and take bigger bets which if you talk to any active manager i'm sure tuttle would agree with this is a lot of over the last like 20 years, you talk to people, their compliance departments weren't let active managers take as big of the swings as they'd like. Um, they weren't allowed to take as big bets. They couldn't de deviate from the benchmark too much. And what ended up happening is like you had a lot of these relatively high cost mutual funds that were only deviating slightly from the underlying benchmark. Right. But what people want now is they want they, they can get that benchmark for virtually free. Right. 
So what they want in that satellite portion of their portfolio is they want things where they can take swings, whether it's these thematic things where they want to follow Pelosi or do an anti-Kramer or follow Kramer, what, what may have you. So what we're seeing is this is showing up in the data, too. As, as Nate mentioned, a lot of the money, despite active ETFs only making up, I think there's 300, they're just under 400 billion in assets. U.S. ETFs are a six, almost $7 trillion asset base right now. So it's a very small portion of it. But what we're seeing is a lot of these ETFs, even passive ones that are thematic ETFs, are getting far more concentrated. And active ETFs are also getting more concentrated and more active. So they're not just holding the same things for a whole quarter or a half a year or what may have you. Um, so there's this overarching trend of active managers getting more active, more concentrated, and taking sw bigger swings. Because you're not going to pay 85 bips or 85... 85 basis points for somebody to just give you the benchmark and then deviate slightly. You're going to pay that money for somebody who's doing something that's very differentiated and going out on the limb and doing things from bottom up or completely different top-down analysis than what you can get in a passive, virtually commoditized space. So that's how we look at the space. Now, some of this may have been driven by uh, a lot of the zero interest rate policy stuff that we saw. So maybe some of that's starting to change now that interest rates, but we still see this as an overarching trend in the active space. James, can I ask you a quick question just uh, with respect to that? You gave that breakdown of active versus like the U.S. ETF landscape, just total AUM. Obviously, the fees are very different on these like pure active. Like, are, have you guys been able to break that down? I'm kind of curious to see how that breaks down, because obviously, you know, that's going to be a very different shape of the pie. Yeah. So the way that we look at it and the one thing that we keep talking about is ba people basically need to like beta adjust their fees. If, like I said, if you're giving somebody basically uh, an index portfolio or a closet index portfolio and you're charging 85 bips, no one's going to buy that. People might buy that if you're going to charge 25 or 30 bips, though. But stuff where, like what Tuttle is doing that is way more intensive and way more tracking of different things or way more active and concentrated, people seem to be willing to pay up for those types of portfolios. So, so that's what we're seeing. So it's also a lot of a lot of this has to do with active managers that did what I was talking about, the closet indexing. They never passed on the economies of scale when these some of these funds got to tens of billions of dollars. They never passed on the economies of scales and lowered fees for investors. So there's a bit of a backlash on the fee side of things. But people are willing to pay high fees for high active share as far as we're concerned and alpha. Um, if you can produce alpha and you're differentiated, people are gonna, willing to pay for it. And even if you're not going to be that high active share, but you're going to be active and differentiate, if you're going to offer that at a low price, people are willing to pay for that too. Ironically, Vanguard is on its way to being the largest active manager in the United States, uh, which I don't think most people realize. But their funds, they're low cost and they're not super high active share. They're, they, they tend to be somewhat close to benchmarks. Thanks, James. So, Matthew, a few things real quick here. One, James commented that you'd probably agree with his sentiment earlier. So I'm curious if you agree with that. And I'm also I'd like to hear about portfolio expenses and how you break the fees down on your side. Sorry, who, who, who did you ask that to? That one was to uh, you, Matthew. Sorry. Say, say it again. A, a phone call just came in, so you, you broke up. Oh, no worries. So I was just wondering if you do indeed, as James said, agree with his sentiment there. And I'm also curious about how portfolio expenses work for you and how you break the fees down on your side. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, and, and, and I agree 100%. I mean, 
you know, I, I grew up in, in the industry where, you know, most active management was was really beta that, you know, people were charging 1% or more for. You know, it was basically just index huggers, nobody willing to to take a swing at anything. And, you know, and that's why you see all those statistics about, well, you know, active doesn't beat passive. Well, you know, of course, sucky active is is never going to beat passive because, you know, th- those managers aren't doing anything. So, you know, I, I think that is the new portfolio construction out there where, you know, there's there's tons of cheap beta and, you know, and then you fill it in with, you know, again, the, the non-correlated asset classes, your managed futures, your, you know, your SGIM. And, you know, and, and, you know, fees have to be kind of dependent on, you know, on what you're delivering. So, you know, we chose an expense ratio of 95 basis points for SGIM just from the standpoint of it is really, 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 really hard to, to, to run this portfolio. You know, we've got to watch Kramer every morning from you know, basically 8.45 to 10, um, mad money every night and, you know, watch his tweets. And, you know, you know, number one, just trying to compile all of the, you know, what what is he positive on? What's he negative on? Is that really a call? Is that not a call? And then just, you know, the torture of, of having to watch it. I mean, you know, anyone out there who's who's ever watched mad money you know, knows what I mean. It's, it's, it's not a simple thing. Uh, so, you know, from, from our standpoint, and, and we think fees need to be under one, uh, you know, so from our standpoint, we, we went with 95 basis points there. We also do, you know, a lot of ETFs that, you know, track other ETFs. Uh, we do have some more of those coming within the next couple of weeks as well. And, you know, and, we like to use the underlying expense ratio. So for example, managed futures, we've got, we've filed for an ETF that's 2X DBMF, which is another managed futures ETF. We chose the same expense ratio as they do because basically now what somebody can do is they can buy our ETF, take half the position, get the same exposure. And in essence, you're paying half the fees. So that, that's how we kind of look at that. Yeah, and I, I'd say to your your comment about the difficulty of really staying on top of Kramer for the S gym, I <laughs> I think that you know watching Kramer alone is hard enough. But I digress here. Nate, yesterday you tweeted of a past notion that ETFs were quote causing a bubble, and that now, as you said, another myth goes to die. Nate, can you walk us through what you meant by that? Yeah, it's so funny because uh, over the past. 10 or 15 years as ETFs have grown, we've seen every type of scare headline out there about how ETFs are impacting the market, that they're impeding price discovery of the underlying. They're causing a bubble. Um, you, you name, they're weapons of mass destruction. And think about the types of market environments we've seen just over the past three years. We had the COVID crash in March of 2020. S&P was down 34% over the span of a, a few weeks. Obviously, last year was challenging. And every time we've seen those market events, 
ETFs have proven their mettle, uh, whether it's on the equity side or the fixed income side or even looking at some of the alternative assets. Uh, and so I just I I like to have fun with that because uh, people take these pot shots or they have over the years at ETFs as they have grown. Um, but nobody goes back and looks at the track record of how those people are, you know, how, whether those predictions were accurate. And interestingly, a lot of those claims, uh, at least my experience has been, have come from um, active managers, particularly expensive closet indexing active managers, as James was speaking to, because the growth of ETFs has really exposed that space more than any other. If you're an active manager, basically replicating the benchmark and trying to charge a point on it, um, you, you're out of luck now. And so a lot of those active managers were the ones who were taking shots at uh, ETFs. But I, I won't get into all the data. The bottom line is that uh, pick your market environment. You can even go back to 2008 in what happened during that time frame. ETFs um, have held up. They've been efficient price discovery vehicles. Um, they've uh, added liquidity uh, to the market. They've acted as a buffer uh, in, in volatile markets. So uh, I, I like to have fun with it. But that, that was the gist of the tweet. So you actually Nate. gave. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, Nate, you forgot my favorite one, which was that ETFs are worse than Marxism. Um, <laughs> there, there's a list. Your your uh, your colleague uh, Eric Balchunas, I think he has a list of like 15 of them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I, I agree with everything Nate said, but I wanted to throw that one out there because that's just my favorite. It's it's too good. And that that company who wrote that actually ended up launching ETFs like after they published that article. But that's a, they always do. Yeah. It never fails. So. Speaking of buffer, actually, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry. So we we spoke a bit about how ETFs have an ability to be a better hedge on markets. And since we just, you know, tickled the topic of buffers real quick, I'm curious to hear the panel's thoughts on buffer ETFs, those ETFs intended to limit investment downside. Notably, BlackRock's currently seeking to offer two separate buffer ETFs. And James, you've touched on this topic. Oh, excuse me, real quick. I'm going to mute you here, Matthew. We've just got a little background noise there. So James, you've touched on this topic before at Bloomberg, stating the growth has been tremendous. What's the thought process behind these buffer ETFs and what has contributed to their seemingly explosive rise to popularity in recent years? Are these buffers to cap losses a long-term opportunity or just a result of fearful times? Yeah, so these I was extremely bullish on these things when they first when I first learned about them coming out. They're essentially structured products. Um, and what they do is they cap your downside exposure, but to do that, they also cap, cap your upside exposure. So they might limit, like you won't lose more than 20%, you up to 20%, you won't lose anything. But if the, the index that you're tracking goes off really strongly or goes up strongly, you might be capped at 15%. And it's kind of complex. You have to use all the uh, Greek letters, theta, vega, all those types of things to figure out exactly where those caps lie. Um, but the whole process here is the whole thought process. Is basically, you can define the outcomes with which it, you're playing. Right. So I'm not going to lose more than X. I'm also not going to gain more than Y. So for advisors, they like this because they can guarantee things for their end clients. Right. But they're definitely not long term investments, depending on how you use them. For the most part, they should be used tactically. 
or they should be used as sort of like a lot. I've, I've heard of advisors taking maybe a slice out of their fixed income portfolio when fixed income wasn't yielding anything. And they were putting some of these uh, buffer ETFs in there, or defined outcome ETFs into their fixed income sleeve. So in a 60-40 portfolio, you might take 5 to 10% of your 40% and put that into these type of buffer products. It would still give you upside potential and seriously cap your downside risk. Um, so a lot of people are using it for that. If you have money, you know, you need to use in a year from now or two years from now, and you really are worried about the market going down 40% or something like that, you really want to limit those risks. People are using it for those things. So people are using them for diversification. People are using them to time the market. There's a lot of reasons that people are using these things. Um, and the other side of it is the, the BlackRock is entering the space, which I actually said that I could see them doing it if this space really takes off. Um, Part of the reason they're doing it is because all the ones that are out there now track SPY for the most part. And so the ones that BlackRock is launching are going to be tracking IVV, which is their S&P 500 ETF. Um, the downside here is that these are only price return indices, right? So one, most of the index returns, if you look back over time, are actually from these years where the market is up 50%. So if you're capped at 12, 15, whatever percent may have you, you're drastically going to underperform over the long term. But in shorter time periods, it gives you a more defined outcome, especially for somebody maybe in retirement or as money they have to spend over a certain time period. These things aren't cheap. They are only price returns, so you don't get dividend return from these things. They're not total return indices that they track. Uh, there's a few other things on here that like make them not great for long-term holding, but there are ways that you can put them in a portfolio that they might make sense. So I'll just stop there. I, I think these things are great, especially they're just another tool in the ETF toolbox that advisors can dip into. I don't think there's something that every advisor should put in for every client, but they, there's definitely things that these can be used for and are being used for. And the other side, the one thing I didn't mention is that these things are relatively expensive, typically around 80 basis points. But if you compare them to the structured notes when you go to insurance providers and things like that when you're buying them directly, they often cost a lot more. So these are way cheaper, uh, a little more tax efficient potentially. Um, so those are other reasons why this is growing very quickly because there's already tens, hundreds of billions of dollars in structured notes that do things like this. Uh, and now they're just in the more transparent ETF wrapper. Thank you, James. So that actually brings me to another topic in terms of diversification and kind of picking and choosing where money should be parked. Uh, as many already know, mutual funds have long been a go-to option for many investors due to the wide array of options, diversity of investments they offer. Some, however, are now saying 33 years after the first ETF launched in Canada, 30 years after the launch of SPY, that we may be at a time or approaching a time where ETFs are a better choice for investors. And in some cases, excuse me, in some cases have claimed that mutual funds are becoming obsolete. So I'm going to kick this over to Jeff. Can you quickly walk us through the key difference between a mutual fund and an ETF? Sure, uh, absolutely. And thank you for having me on the call. And, and I'll give you an example here of, um, you know, it, maybe it's recency bias, but an area where we've seen it. And I, it, as far as I can tell in my career, it's one of the first times I've really noticed it, which is the gut instinct in the money markets to not necessarily grab an open-end open -end mutual fund, but to come over to the ETF structure for overnight money, what with everybody doing what we call the bank walk, right? Leaving their savings and checking deposits and looking to try to find a place for assets. We're over here at Wisdom Tree and we're saying, whoa, we'll look at these flows coming in in our short-term stuff. Um, and part of that's the fee, the fee war. And part of it's just, I think, you know, the, the embrace on the fixed income side 
of the ETF structure. Because if you go back to SPY launching 30 years ago, I think, what, the first bond fund was probably 20 years ago. So there was that lagged effect between uh, this was essentially a wrapper that was put on equity products. And then there was, you know, this big gap in time before the fixed income business and the alts and everything followed along. So that's one of the things that's noteworthy. But, you know, obsolescence of mutual funds, um, you know, I've oftentimes said, because uh, I'm 42 years old, so this might give an idea of, you know, I'm not, I'm not 22, I'm not 62, I'm a mid-career guy. And outside of a 401k, and outside of from time to time, you find a closed-end fund at some beep, you know, big discount to NAV, I've never in my life purchased a mutual fund. And so here you have this person who's in the business, who's following this stuff day to day, and I've never bought a mutual fund, and I've been an adult for like 20 years. Um, why would I? You, you go into a mutual fund structure, and if it's in your taxable account, you're paying somebody else's taxes. That right there has never rubbed me the right way. Right, where if you're in an ETF, you're paying your taxes. You buy an ETF, you take a short-term gain, that's on you, you pay your taxes. But if I sell my mutual fund and you come in after the fact, you've got to pay the taxes. So that's one of the things that when you use the term obsolescence to describe a mutual fund, maybe it's right. Maybe that's one of the ways to think about it. I mean, the rise of this structure, it's, it's, it's just a legal wrapper. That's what an ETF is through the years has been, you know, I can, I can piggyback on some of the previous comments, you know, piggy, uh, going on legacy products, charging a hundred basis points, closet indexers, and these types of concepts that some of the prior speakers spoke to. Um, it was basically a slam dunk that the last 30 years would gravitate towards ETFs. And I suspect, I don't see any reason why this trend wouldn't continue in the next five or 10 years until there's some other wrapper I mean, that's the risk is that there's something that, that comes after ETFs um, that comes and gobbles us up. I mean, that would be it was, certainly wouldn't be mutual funds by my um, estimation. And, you know, the other thing that I've oftentimes thought about, I, and it hasn't happened just yet, it kind of, you know, it, it almost started to happen with Kathy Wood was I'm not sure why the legacy mutual fund houses haven't found a Peter Lynch type and said, hey, hey, new Peter Lynch, you need to put together in, 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 the, new, in, in the legacy wrapper, the mutual fund wrapper, uh, 10 or 15 names. You can't do any more than that because otherwise all this money is going to flow over to iShares and Vanguard. Um, and we'll charge a reasonable fee over here at Legacy Mutual Fund Co. And if you can beat the bench, great. You'll be a, we'll be, you'll be a, um, a star manager. Otherwise, owning 100 or 200 names at a legacy fee, I'm just not quite sure what the future is there. None of them have the, the guts to do it. So good for me, good for Wisdom Tree that they don't. But to my knowledge, there's not a lot of, of managers out there. I, f I feel like they need to reincarnate the star manager. And, and, you know, I'll just, you know, you asked me about the, you know, mutual funds and ETFs and the, and the differences between the two. I mean, one of the things that I think is less important than the, the, the tax code, um, you know, if I have an ETF I, and it's 10.13 in the morning, I sell it at 10.13 in the morning. 
Um, whereas with the mutual fund, you have to wait till everything closes at the end of the day. That's one of the issues. And, you know, just to, just to, uh, something that Nate said earlier that I thought was, was particularly interesting. And I, I've, I've loved this through the years. Yes. The, the, the passive index fund is, is the reincarnation of Friedrich Engels and Karl Marx. That was a doozy from five or 10 years ago. What I've never understood about that argument of, of, ETFs being the, the demolition time bomb is, wait a minute, if we're having something like a flash crash uh, before I'm finished with my morning coffee, and I'm, I own the XYZ ETF, but I also own what, Tesla, what, I can't sell Tesla? Like, like the only thing we sell in a panic is our ETFs, as opposed to the most, you know what everybody does in a panic, they go find their most speculative holding, and that's what they vomit up onto the marketplace in a panic if the regulators if the regulators really wanted to try to figure out what's lurking out there that could cause some sort of implosion of the system they need to be looking at credit default swaps these extremely illiquid cds we just saw it a few weeks ago trying to bring down the european banking system on highly illiquid cds where the bonds didn't really move on you know which plays over there in, in Europe. I, I I think Nate hit the nail on the head. There's this notion that ETFs are are the thing that would cause some disruption. I think that's just cope from people who are trying to protect their careers. Thank you, Jeff. So I'll have another question here in just a second from Matthew. But first, I want to hear some comments from the panel, given Jeff's comments here. Are all the would-be mutual fund stars going to the ETF world or ETF you know, collapsing the world? Uh, Thomas? Yeah, absolutely. Jeff nailed it, right? You need... You need the voice back, right? You know, I think we've just come through this era of like where people are like, you know, index, index, and it's just really core passive. And that concept of the barbell, which James brought up, it's okay, fine. I understand that my generic beta is not going to have a voice. I just want it to be as cheap as possible. Like, you know, make it as, you know, as standard basis. But when we're talking about the active component, uh, and whether that that voice is that historical voice from the, from the mutual fund side, now you're going to sit in. You're going to sit on the ETF side. You, you can't hide uh, being a closet indexer, which which you know, which is a, a lot of the mutual fund industry has uh, you know has that you know has that negative connotation, and rightly so, right? Like you know, you've got risk managers plus PMs who are just looking to lo- increase their longevity, not taking enough risk. It's just trying to. You know, trying to keep the you know trying to keep the the, the money machine going. Now, uh, the the idea is focus up, deliver real active exposure, and give it you know give a voice behind it. it of course, it, it, the ETFs are the perfect place for that. Any other comments from the panel here? Maybe J- maybe Nate. Yeah, I would just add. Look, it, at a high level, ETFs are lower cost. They're more tax efficient. You have that intraday tradeability. They can offer exposure to pretty much every nook and cranny of the market. And you have daily transparency. And I think a good example, everybody likes to talk about uh, Ark and Kathy Wood. And, and, you know, there's a subset of people that view her as a hero. There's another subset that view her as a charlatan. Doesn't matter what you think about her. She's a perfect example of, of an active manager who has properly leverage the ETF wrapper because she's sharing all of her research. Again, whether or not you agree with her research and the prognostications, she's sharing that out in public. You can go and check her holdings every day. So she's putting her money where her mouth is. 
And uh, her fee, if you look at where her fees are, yes, they're higher than where the average uh, ETF expense ratio is, but much cheaper than similar types of mutual funds that are out there. And I, I think investors gravitate to that. So going back to where we started this conversation, if you think about how a lot of people build portfolios, uh, whether passive or active, um, you have a core portfolio and then there's typically an explore component. And that's where these highly concentrated active strategies come in, which is what, you know, Ark and Kathy Wood are doing. Or if you want to look at the thematic ETF space, uh, you know, pick pick your, your theme, blockchain, cannabis, doesn't matter. Um, people are supplementing portfolios with those, um, you know, more concentrated, uh, higher share active uh, strategies. And I, I just think that the ETF wrapper has proven to be an efficient vehicle to do that. So I, I do think that people view me as an ETF cheerleader. That's fine. But I do think the mutual fund wrapper as a whole is dying. There's just not a, a lot of compelling use cases for it. Probably the only one is that you can close to new investors if you had a, a more highly concentrated strategy. But outside of that, you just look at the lower cost of the ETF wrapper, the tax efficiency, the transparency. It, it's a tough combination to beat. Thank you, Nate. So I do want to talk a little bit more about thematic ETFs and the future of thematic ETFs. But first, uh, Matthew, I wanted to pick your brain here real quick. One thing I've seen you say in the past about TCM is, quote, at Tuttle Capital Management, not losing money is just as important as making money. Matthew, how has this mindset helped you with your investment management? And what tactics do you utilize to preserve capital? And as you put it, not lose money. Yeah, and 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 I think that's huge. You know, I, I like I said, I've been a trader since the mid '80s, and so you know, you, you look at what passes for financial advice these days. You know, diversified portfolio. You can't time the market. Uh, you know, risk tolerance based on your age, and. I mean, quite honestly, I, th I think it's stupid. Um, you know, last year, regardless of your age, there's no reason to ride the money, ride the market down. You know, can you time the market from the standpoint of, you know, do I know where things are going to close today? No, I don't. Can I time the market from the standpoint of, you know, do I know? you know, times where, you know, I, I want to be more heavily invested versus times I don't. Yeah, I definitely can. You know, do I know, you know, this is a period where, you know, I want to be careful with what I'm doing. Yeah. You know, I also believe that people should be agnostic between long and short. There is such a stigma, um, you know, in, in the financial area, but also, you know, from dealing with the SEC, such a stigma to short selling where, you know, we, we tried to do the first inverse Bitcoin ETF when, when Bitcoin was at 60,000, the SEC threatened us with enforcement unless we withdrew the application you know, totally and completely stupid, it would have been, it, it would have been awesome. Um, you know, we've got uh, a couple of inverse ETFs in filing right now that they're, you know, they're giving us a hard time about where, you know, they're okay with the long side. So, you know, we just think if, if in, and, and the problem is you've got to have the time, but if you've got the time 
if you're willing to learn and put in the effort, there's no reason you've got to drive the market down in for like a year like 2008 uh, for those who are around 2000 to 2002. And then, you know, one of the things we want to do is we want to provide education. So we do a free daily newsletter um, and we want to provide, you know, products that are tools that people can use either to express, you know, long side bias or downside bias. And we're working on, you know, buy and hold things. Again, I think something like SGIM is a buy and hold tool. We're working on some other potential ideas for buy and hold tools to kind of look at, at portfolio management differently. Thank you, Matthew. So I'm going to kick next to the entire panel. We spoke about the SEC dragging and moving the ETF space. So given the panel's expertise, I'd like your thoughts on regulators enhancing or hindering the ETF space, especially given the future of ETFs. So this goes to the whole panel, but let's start with Thomas here. Yeah, you know, obviously the 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 unique nature of of some of these you know innovative ETFs, and obviously I think you know the 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 whole industry is is well ahead of regulators, right? And it, it's it's pushing the envelope, and I think that's a good thing. I I think you do want some checks, right? And I don't think you can't have something you know just balloon out of control. And I think I think what they've done has made sense so far, but you know, from my perspective. The ETF industry itself is is really pushing the envelope, which which I like. You know, like you got single stock, single stock ETFs. It, you know, it's it's all super interesting. Yeah, I'll chime in here. I, I so like the one thing I would say is, I I mean I've only been in the industry about ten years, um, and I never really thought too much about the regulators in this industry. They were always they for the most part were protecting investors. They were doing the right things. I will say that since. Uh, since Gensler came to the SEC, I feel like there's a lot more of a chokehold on the industry and a lot more limiting, uh, limiting of um, in, uh, investment, a lot more limiting of uh, innovation um, on his side of things. Um, the one thing I would also point out is I'm sure Matt would chime in with is the SEC definitely does not like single security ETFs, even if traders do like them. Um, but uh, that said, I, I would say, like, for the most part, until the recent years, they, they added the ETF rule in 2019, which was part of the reason we're seeing this huge growth in active managers joining the space. Legacy asset managers are joining because they see the writing on the wall that all of us have been talking about. Um, so I, I think that and, and I would just chime in also real quickly that we were talking about the the trend for mutual fund ETFs and uh, Jeff made some good points. I would say I think the trend is accelerating uh, despite whatever the SEC is is doing to the ETF space. And a lot of the stuff we're talking about now is um, not small, but it's it's small in comparison to the larger ETF ecosystem. Uh, and there's really just not much that regulators can do to, to hamper what's happening. Uh, so I would say for the most part, they've enhanced it until recent years. I think they've gone uh, a little over their skis and stopping certain things from happening and don't like certain things. But that's just more my personal opinion of of how the SEC under Gary Gensler has, has handled some things, both with relation to ETFs and with and with relation to crypto. Thank you, James. Go ahead, Jeff. Saw your hand, and then I'm going to kick over to Nate for his thoughts. Sure, and and the one thing I would say on that, that you know, before we get back to the SEC, is that remember when you take someone like me, we're going into an RIA, we're going to meet the team, try to convince them to go towards Wisdom Tree, right? And there's a, a 60 year old, 40 year old, and a 25 year old 
sitting there and the 25 year old is the junior analyst, but the 60 year old is the one who's maintaining the client relationship. Looks like we might've lost you. Ah, uh, am I back? Yep. You're back. Yeah, it, it can't prevent when somebody calls you while you're on a Twitter space. My apologies. You, know, you got the 60, the 40, and the 25-year-old, and the future of the firm is going to pass the baton to the 40-year-old, who will then teach the 25-year-old how to be the future of the firm at this fictitious small RIA. And the business might have been built 25 years ago on a mutual fund mandate, but uh, you know that 25-year-old is in there looking at to do ETF diligence, and most of the time, that's the person you're talking to, truth be told, in these relationships. Now, on the, on the, uh, the matter of the regulators, one of the things that's coming up might be a little bit of an issue for the industry, and a lot of this is going to depend on which way the winds blow with the energy complex, the climate initiatives, the ESG stuff. Um, we've got this fund naming rule of which probably Nate knows more about this, this issue than me. Um, uh, but essentially, they're saying, look, there was some greenwashing going on with ESG. Uh, the ESG stuff really, really had a tough 2022 because uh, there was a lot of exclusion of the, the highest performing group, which is oil and gas. Uh, they're going to take a, a better look at that. They're also talking about this would affect like like Wisdom Tree. This would affect us because they're also taking a look at when you call a firm, uh, call a fund growth or when you call a fund value. What does that mean? So this could be an issue. I don't know how big of an issue it is. But, you know, we've got these – the uh, ESG is now in the spotlight, so we'll see if it ends up being a bigger 2023 and 2024 story than 2022. But in just thinking about regulators, that's the first thing that comes to my mind. Thank you, Jeff. Nate, I'd like your comments here as well before we move on to the next question. Yeah, I'll just say, look, the SEC – clearly has a difficult job in the ETF industry makes that even more difficult because the industry is constantly pushing innovation. There's a reason the ETF space is called the Silicon Valley of asset management and the SEC has to regulate that. Um, I, I would say my biggest frustration is that there seem to be a lot of contradictions in terms of what is and is not approved. And I, everybody will laugh, but the best example of that to me is a spot Bitcoin ETF. So the SEC continues to disallow a spot Bitcoin ETF. If you look just this year, though, however, they've allowed a triple leveraged uh, gold ETN, which has credit risk uh, to come to market. They've allowed a triple leveraged energy sector ETN to come to market. Inverse versions of both of those, also triple leveraged. And, but yet they won't allow a spot Bitcoin ETF. They've also allowed you know, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, which trades at a 35 to 40% discount to, to be out there and available trading over the, uh, the counter. A company like MicroStrategy, which is levered up to buy Bitcoin, is effectively a Bitcoin ETF proxy. Um, I, I just think that there are some contradictions like that that are frustrating. Now, I'll also say that I think crypto is probably the biggest opportunity uh, in the ETF space overall moving forward. I do think at some point, the SEC will get more comfortable with crypto. Ultimately, that's going to be uh, on Congress to put some semblance of a crypto regulatory framework in place. And once that happens, I believe the SEC will ultimately have some oversight over crypto exchanges. And then when that happens, you'll see crypto related ETFs uh, proliferate. Now, I think the opportunity there is, I, I don't know that it's so much on the spot Bitcoin or spot Ethereum ETF side, because I think most major brokerages will offer 
direct trading in those types of crypto assets. We've already seen that with uh, someone like Fidelity. So I think the ETF play will be index-based or actively managed crypto offerings. So in, investors will want to own a basket of crypto assets just like they own a, uh, a basket of stocks. But I, I think crypto is probably the biggest conundrum for the SEC right now on the ETF side, but I think it's also the biggest opportunity. Thank you, Nate. So we just spoke about crypto ET, excuse me, about crypto and ETFs. Uh, Matthew, there are a number of ETFs that Tuttle Capital is involved in, but given the previous discussion about Kathy Woods and innovation uh, as a villain or otherwise, I want to focus real quick here on Sark again. Since its launch in November of 21, some have criticized you for, quote, shorting American innovation, which you've said isn't necessarily the case. Matthew, can you outline for us your purpose with the short innovation daily ETF future of funds like this? Maybe one you guys uh, have in the pipeline now. Yeah, and 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 we do have some stuff that that maybe might even get filed next week. I've got a couple prospectuses that look look about done. So you know, the, uh, there, there's a lot there. I, I mean, certainly I have criticized Kathy Wood in the past um, and would maybe speculate whether the companies or all of the companies in her portfolio are truly innovative. You know, is a Hood, is a Coinbase, is a Roku, are they innovative today? Maybe they were innovative when they bought them. Are they still innovative? I'll leave that to others to decide. But what I really look at at Sark is, and you know, in, in the other stuff we've been involved with, you know, single stock things in the past. We've got some single stock things we're working on at the moment, um, you know, as as tools. And if you use kind of Kathy's own words, she talked about Arc as the new Nasdaq. Um, you know, wh whether it is or not, we'll will leave open to debate. But if you look at the NASDAQ or, you know, the NASDAQ 100, I mean, there are at least two or three inverse ETFs on that. And if you look at any major index, there are ways to play it from the long side. There are ways to play it from the short side. And, you know, and again, as I said before, I'm a huge believer that you ought to be agnostic between long and short. You know, yes, I get it. Most of the time and over long periods of time, the market goes up. And regardless of what you think about, you know, Kathy Wood and ARC, you know, if we're sitting here 10 years from now, chances are, you know, that portfolio is going to be up a lot from, you know, where it currently is. Uh, but I look at things like SARC purely as a tool. And, you know, and, and you look at, you know, how it did last year. And, you know, all the people who tweeted, DM'd, emailed me, you know, basically thanking me because that was the only thing in their portfolio that was green. And, you know, in, in going back to the idea of a better hedge and, you know, innovation in the ETF space, you know, like I said before, I'm a trader. And, you know, Historically, when I had a negative view on the market, not on a specific stock, but, you know, on the market as a whole, you know, really the only way to kind of express that was an inverse NASDAQ or an inverse S&P 500 ETF. 
And, you know, again, the problem you have there is you're shorting Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, you know, also the money flows are against you because money is constantly flowing into the S&P and the NASDAQ. So, you know, again, I go back to my previous statement. If you are negative on the market, which types of stocks would you rather be shorting? You know, mega cap tech or Roku, Teladoc and, you know, in, in, in some of that other stuff. So, you know, that, that's my thought on that. James and Thomas, I see your hands. Let's go James, then Thomas, and then we'll get things moving along again. Yeah, I actually had this exact conversation with Matt in person last week or the week before. Um, talking about Kathy, a lot of the criticisms of her and the way that her portfolios run, um, some are valid. Some of the stuff Matt just spoke about is you can certainly make those criticisms, but some of it isn't valid. People want her to move more to cash, to go to like other funds. She didn't rotate. I mean, if, if you're paying Kathy to invest in innovative type companies, right? And then she goes and buys something like Exxon Mobil, Mobile or like puts more money into Apple or a large part of her portfolio. Do you know what's going to happen to her fund and her investors? They're all going to leave because she's not doing what she's supposed to be doing. So I, I think that's part of something that people don't realize. Like she's an active manager. and She's almost broken out like in her own niche is like this super uh, high tech, uh, low, low profit or no profit area. Um, so th that's what she's known for. And that's the space she's playing in and staying in with ARKK and these other products. So like she can't differentiate and start moving to other areas of the market. She can just trade around within those markets. And like I said, there's plenty of criticism you can make of her, but people are using her and paying for her high concentration, high active share portfolios. And if she differentiates, which people criticize her for not doing, it would be bad for her and her company as far as we're concerned. So that's one thing I would I, I would say and add on to what, what Matt was just talking about, that I feel like a lot of people outside the ETF industry really don't fully comprehend. Um, so, yeah, I'll, I'll stop there. Thank you, James. Thomas? Yeah, so, you know, the GRZZ ETF, we're investing in innovation and disruption, and our take is that, you know, the criticism around Kathy, it's it's not around the innovation. It's just what she, you know, how she's uh, put that in a portfolio. And, you know, what we'd say is what she looks at is science fair companies like disruption at any price. You know, this is where the cash flow acceleration is in a, in a time frame, uh, call it 10 years uh, out, that, you know, no one can really put their finger on. In, in 2022, you really saw what disruption at any price does. Our view is di disruption at a reasonable price. Um, you know what would historically call it growth at a reasonable price. We call it DAR, where we think that sweet spot is in the four to six year range, uh, where where that cash flow inflection happens. And I think that's, you know, I think that's the real key point here. It's not what people want is innovation. I think what Kathy has, while it's a unique set of companies. Um, it's basically science fair innovation, right? And where you, it's that cash flow inflection that's so far out. Whereas I think there's a great group of companies, some of them could be very large cap, like Microsoft, uh, as we're clearly seeing now with AI, that you, they can be large cap, they can be, uh, you know, they can be mid small cap as well, but they are that cash flow inflection happens that four to six year period. And I think that's really the differentiator, right? So, you know, we were, we were running uh, our dark, a philosophy, you know, we've been running since the start, but we had a full calendar year in 2022. And, you know, we outperformed Kathy by uh, 40, uh, 47%. Um, and that's like usually, and that really, I think the key part is just, that's on 2022. Obviously that's a, you, you, that's a key year because what you're seeing here is that 
what one of the, the biggest criticisms of her strategy when you invest in sci-fi growth is your drawdowns are extreme. You know, her drawdown uh, in 2022 was 70 minus 72%. It's an incredible number that I don't, you know, when you think about putting that into a, well, how much art can I possibly own in a, in a portfolio asset allocation wheel? Maybe this is a question for Nate and just kind of broader is, is how, how can you even put that in a real serious slug when that drawdown is that significant? Yeah, all I would say to that is that one of the beautiful things about the ETF space is it's a meritocracy. And going back to the transparency of the ETF wrapper, any investor out there can see exactly what a, what a manager is doing, what they own at any given time, and, and then make a decision as to where they allocate their money. And more investors just have to do that. So, you know, Thomas, I mean, to your point, somebody can look at, at your ETF and they can look at ARKK. And they have to make that determination. Now, one of the things that obviously Kathy's done really well and is very effective at is marketing. Uh, she's everywhere, right? She'll put out a research report on any topic. And the next thing you know, Bloomberg, CNBC, uh, you know, Financial Times, everybody will be running a headline story on that. So she has the marketing perfected. But ultimately, um, it comes down to the fact that investors have to evaluate these strategies and decide for themselves. Uh, to, to James's earlier point, I'll just say, you know, one of the whether you like Kathy Wood or, or not, one of the things that she did do effectively is you, you look at ARKK, that thing was down, what, 70 percent last year, and then it's up 25 percent this year. Well, she stuck with a strategy and, you know, that may end up not being a, 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 a you know, good thing to do, but that's what investors expect from her. So they, but they have to evaluate the underlying to, to your point, Thomas. You know, and, and Nate, just on that point, like, uh, you know, full kudos to her to sticking with the strategy. I think one of the biggest negatives where it's just, if you look at her trading around, especially in 2022, it was brutal, right? That was the one thing where she's talking about, like, you know, these structural amazing things. But meanwhile, she has high turnover and, it, you know, it, like top ticking. Like, it just was an incredible, uh, I think that if I had a valid criticism is that it, on the positive side, she's stuck with the philosophy of, you know, what I'd call science fair disruption but on the negative it's just that conviction just it just didn't feel that that, that was there but but again but the marketing comes in and exactly. investors have to decide for themselves what one one thing i'd push back on there a little bit i, I mean it should be a meritocracy but the playing field is 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 skewed um and and you know nate mentioned it a bit you know the marketing but you know you've got and, and, and this is something I've railed against for a while. And one of the other reasons why, you know, I've done inverse Kathy Wood and inverse Jim Cramer is the media really unlevels the playing field because, yeah, investors need to evaluate this stuff. But it's tough when, you know, CNBC brings Kathy Wood on and calls her the next Warren Buffett. And even... You know, and even last year, they would bring her on with deference. You know, yeah, every once in a while, someone would be like, hey, Kathy, by the way, you're down 60% this year. What do you think? But now you look at this year and you see articles coming out, you know, ARC is back. Um, you know, so it's, it should be a meritocracy, but it's, it, is, it is very difficult. I mean, yeah, you've got to give it to her. She put herself in that position where she's a media darling, it just, it, it makes it harder for investors when, when they're hearing all that noise. 
Matt, you know, just on that point, it's a great point, right? Because you see the stuff coming out now with Chamath and and and, uh, and leverage that he had it, but it just was incredible how CNBC just gave you know g- gave these characters uh, that ultimately had huge drawdowns, right? It, it just, it, but one hundred percent underscoring your point. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, people think the media is like this unbiased education. And, you know, and in, in that they, you know, bring on the best of the best. And, you know, it, it, it's not the case. I mean, A, they're entertainment. You know, B, look at who the advertisers are. You know, C, the people who are booking these guests to come on or, you know, typically in their early 20s with, with no financial experience. So, you know, look at it as entertainment. And yeah, maybe if there's some breaking news, you know, you, you might hear it, even though these days you hear it on Twitter before you hear it on CNBC. So, I mean, just be very, very careful with, with what you hear in the media, unless it's coming from James. <laughs> I'd love to hear that. That was a nice little. So what I want to do here now is something we always do toward the tail end of our spaces and panels is i want to go down the line here get kind of everybody's final thoughts on the etf landscape on the future of etfs and when we do this please feel free to plug anything you're working on and anything you have coming out i really want to get people your guys direction to learn from you and see what we've got going on so let's start with you matthew anything you want to plug anything you got coming out and i'd love to hear your closing thoughts on the futures of etf yeah, so, you know, obviously big fan of, of SGM, especially here where, you know, I don't think the market's going a whole heck of a lot of anywhere until either the Fed or, you know, the people expecting a Fed pivot blank. Um, believe that, you know, we're just, just starting to scratch the surface on innovation uh, and we're going to continue to push. We're going to continue to push the regulators We've got at least four filings coming down the road over the next week or two, uh, including one in partnership with another group that's also been a big player in, in the retail space. Um, we've come out with something that we are hoping we can get through, um, you know, that will be you know, a, a, another pretty innovative uh, set of products that we also hope will be the first of many in this partnership. And you know, it, it will be interesting to see if, if that model kind of, um, you know, continues to grow because, I mean, as James, well, as, as everyone knows, I mean, the ETF marketplace is very top heavy. You know, you've got the top guys have the most of the assets and then you've got, you know, smaller shops like mine, small, you know, Grizz and and the like. And, you know, and we could all sit here and compete with each other or we could find out ways to collaborate. And so it'll be interesting to see if if more and more people kind of look at the model that we're going to be coming out with and. And, and do more things like that. Really excited to see how all that develops, Matthew. Thank you for coming today and lending your expertise to this for the listeners sure. today. 
Nate, do you have any closing thoughts, anything you need to plug before we get going here? Yeah, I'll just keep this very basic. I mean, I think the high-level future for the ETF industry is clearly continued growth. Um, I think pretty significant growth. Uh, there was actually a, uh, a new survey out earlier this week from Brown Brothers Harriman where they said the global ETF industry would hit $30 trillion over the next decade. So it's at less than $10 trillion right now. We can debate the specific numbers, but I think the point is that the longer-term trajectory for the industry is up. And what that means is it's going to create a lot of opportunities, a lot of opportunities for ETF issuers, a lot of opportunities for investors. And I, you know, I'm not really big into plugging things, but I'll just call out, uh, I, I founded something called the ETF Institute, which focuses on ETF education. And we talked today about things like buffer ETFs and options-based strategies. And I, I brought up crypto ETFs. I think education is going to be key for people within the industry and for investors outside of it. And so that's something that I'm really focused on. It's also something that I do on my weekly podcast, ETF Prime, where I bring on resources from across the ETF space to educate investors um, on in products. And I'll just point out, you know, uh, Matt was talking about the narratives that are pushed by CNBC and Bloomberg. What I try to do on my podcast is give a platform to everybody. So I've had Kathy Wood on the podcast. I've had uh, Matt Tuttle. We try to give everybody an opportunity to talk about their products and how investors might use them. So in any event, thank you for, uh, for hosting this today. I've really enjoyed it. And thank you for coming, Nate. And I couldn't agree more that education is key. I'd say education is key in general. You know, knowledge is power, as they say. Thomas, do you have anything to plug here? Any last comments on what's been said during the panel? Well, yeah, you know, it's been a great panel. Thank you guys for hosting. And I just, you know, final takeaways, I think innovation and uh, growth still remain one of the key key areas to invest in. Our take is differentiated than, than ARC. And I think it's, it, in our view, it's, it's, it's the right strategy. It's disruption at a reasonable price versus disruption at any price. Uh, and I think, you know, we're, we're entering a, a horizon where that, that really will play, right? You're going to see uh, innovation coming from uh, equally from large, big cap companies as, uh, as you would like, you know, like niche small companies. And I think that's, uh, and you can get all of that without, you know, without, going out the valuation spectrum, right? You can get that for very reasonable valuations. Like even our ETF, we have a dividend yield, which is unique. And so we have a barbell strategy where we look, we have technology and growth on one side, and then we have commodities uh, on the other. So kind of bringing together both worlds that, uh, that uh, in my background, uh, you know, putting them together. And we think we're in a unique environment where both uh, innovation and growth on the technology side will be important. But on the other side, we think there's been a significant underinvestment in uh, commodity capex in the ground. And we're starting to see that today with respect to prices uh, uh, across the commodity spectrum. And I think we believe that that will continue uh, to be a, a feature in the market and and, uh, and those that are invested in real things, uh, commodities that, that are in demand uh, should uh, should should do very well. So you have this unique world where uh, you can be in growth uh, in both sides, where it's physical growth and what's happening uh, in the digital realm. So uh, that's you know that's my high level takeaway. That's the GRZZ ETF, and also we have a couple thematic ideas in the hopper that uh, we 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 hope to share in the near future. But a very exciting time for all of these unique thematic takes. I think it's just super interesting um, and exciting where you're getting unique factor exposures that you would have never before. And I think what's really interesting is to look at if you're to go out five years from now, right now you have these 
the uh, you have these asset allocation wheels for uh, you know for investors that are in all these different things. I wonder what the future will look like uh, when ETFs get more uh, more penetrated and what that asset allocation wheel will look like. But I think what's clear here is that uh, voices are going to be important and it's going to be a f as much as you know you have the Black Rocks, you have you know have these big monoliths. I think the independence, as Matt was saying, is, are going to be is so much more important. And it, it's uh, you know people people seek out that voice, people seek out that research. So, uh, but yeah, thank you very much, guys, uh, for hosting. And thanks for coming, Topic. Jeff, anything you want to add to what's been spoken about so far, and anything you want to bring attention to that you got coming out? Sure, absolutely. And thanks for having me. Um, you know, I guess it was just about an hour and 15 minutes. I keep coming back to that infamous internet fund from 1998, 1999. It feels like that. Um, that was really the last time we had star celebrity equity fund managers. I mean, I guess you could say we had Bill Miller there about 15 years ago on the equity side. And uh, other than that, in my career, it's fixed income guys, Jeffrey Gunlock and Bill Gross in terms of this celebrity status. And you end up getting that when the cycle is ending, um, you know, I'm thinking about back when Mary Meeker and Frank Quatrone were so famous back there in the late 1990s because it was a tech cycle. And that was a cycle that kicked off in 93. It ran all the way till 2000. And here we are with a stock market that peaked on January 3rd of last year. So call it, uh, you know, 15 months or so into this. We've got a rally since October 12th. So maybe it's all back. I don't know. Um, but one of the things with the ETF business was 2022 was miserable for the market. Um, the S&P was down 18%, but we, we as an industry pulled in something like $800 billion. Um, now, it's not the same as the flows from the prior year, uh, raging bull market of 2021. But in, the thing about a bear, if it ended in 2022, I don't know. But the thing about it is, is it allows you finally to do the thing that we People tell us all the time, well, I bought the such and such fund five or 10 years ago. I've got a huge cap gain in this thing. I don't like the fund anymore, but what am I going to do? I can't pay the taxes. And then a bear market comes along <clears throat> and then they shift capital. So 2022 was a famous year for Wisdom Tree because for once they actually wanted to answer the phone and talk to us about dividends. <laughs> you know, we launched these dividend funds 17 years ago. The stuff has been doing great for 17 years, but for 16 years, they didn't want to talk about it. Um, you know, this was all, all tech, all, I mean, I can't remember which, which guy was talking about it, the no profits, that type of stuff. Um, and that's because it was a speculative market, certainly in 2020 and 2021. And we'll find out if that ends up ending. But one of the things I will conclude with is the interesting phenomenon whereby wisdom tree and power share. I mean, you just name, just find old, any old uh, uh, operation that's not iShares or, or Vanguard. 10, 15 years ago, people hadn't heard of us. Um, it was novel. They didn't really know what an ETF was. And now you get to a point here where you're the strategist at the shop. The, the funds are 17 years old. They seem primed for a dividend cycle. Um, and now we've been through a lot of things, Brexit and COVID and you name it. And I think that that may be one of the sources for flows in the coming years, these 10 or 20 or 30 operations that are, I believe, household names at this point with 15 and 20 year track records starting to pull assets as people continue to move away from mutual funds. So thank you for the invitation and I'll pass to the next speaker.
Thank you so much for coming, Jeff. It's been really great to have your expertise here. And I, I've really enjoyed hearing all of you bounce off of each other. And it's also really nice to hear all of you kind of giving callbacks to one another as well. I, I can see there's a lot of respect within the ETF industry. Um, and it's just it's just been a really great space. This is really fun and cohesive. I learned a lot. I'm sure everybody listening today learned a lot. And so, folks, this will be our wrap on today's ETF space. Make sure that you're following and paying attention to everybody up here. Keep an eye on Total Capital Management. Keep an eye on Wisdom Tree. Keep an eye on Grizzle. Definitely have a lot to learn from these folks. If you came in late or missed any of the space, you didn't miss anything at all. This was recorded. You can find it directly here on Twitter, right where you joined from. We'll also be releasing this later as an Unusual Whales podcast on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube. Keep an eye on the Unusual Whales page for upcoming spaces. We have CPI on the 12th, 7.50 Eastern in the morning. We'll be going over CPI with some experts on that. Thanks again for coming, everybody. Thank you, Matthew, Jeff, Thomas, Nate, and James. Really great to have you guys here today. I can't thank you enough. <laughs>